Good afternoon, Church at Four. If I haven't met you, my name's Ed, and uh, it's wonderful to see you guys here this afternoon. Now, I'm sure your Bibles are probably closed, so try and get your Bibles back open to Mark chapter 7. It's a tricky passage tonight. Um, Mark, who wrote this gospel, knew it was a tricky passage. And uh, that's why there's these brackets. Did you notice that when I was reading? There's brackets everywhere. And that's because Mark knew there would be people like us, Gentiles, non-Jews who would read it. And he has to give us some clues along the way. So look for the clues. um, But we really need God's help. So why don't we ask him for help? Gracious God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is our King and our Saviour, our Lord, the one who has gone before us, the one who speaks. So, Lord, as we hear from you today, uh, make yourself clear. And uh, as we come before this difficult passage, uh, may it cut through to where we need to hear it. In Jesus' name. My friend was um, on a virtual car auction during COVID. Strange world we lived in. And he saw a beautiful white Toyota Camry. And people, when he logged on, were just bidding like crazy for this Camry. So he thought, oh, what the heck? Threw on a bid and he won. No, it's good. He he wants the car. So he got the car towed. It was in Melbourne. He got the car towed from Melbourne to Sydney on the back of a truck. And it arrived at his house, came down off the the, um, tip tray. And then he got in. Put the keys in, wouldn't start. <laughs> Didn't have Dave Hanready as a friend, so he had to work it out himself. Came around the front, opened the hood, and the problem was instantly clear. There was no engine. There was no transmission. There was no radiator. And there was no battery. It was a lemon. Nice on the outside, beautiful on the outside useless underneath. Theranos promised a revolution in blood testing. Now, some of you will have never had a blood test. When it's your turn, it's not very pleasant. What they do is they take vials of your blood, so like little cylinders, and it's like it comes out of your arm and it's awful, right? And sometimes you've got to have three or four of them. Theranos said, we'll do your test with two drops of blood. It's life-changing, right? To anyone who's had blood tests, that's life-changing. And so they said on this beautiful machine, 70 common tests. At its peak, the company was worth $9 billion. Rupert Murdoch invested in it. You know what the problem was? The machine didn't work. It never worked. It could not do the 70 tests. And the test that it tried to do, it got wrong. And when you get a blood test and it's wrong, that is not good. It was a lemon. It's worth zero, nothing. Nothing now, the company. Now, if you're a Facebook marketplacer or an eBayer or a car salesperson, you know that you are wondering every time you buy whether you're buying a lemon. Now, what is a lemon? A lemon is when there's a significant difference between what you see and what you're told and what is actually reality, or what's under the hood. And that's why, with confidence, you test drive a car. You've got no idea. It's why you inspect a house, as if you can really see what's behind those walls. 
And then while you kick a car, while you kick, no, you don't kick the car, you kick the tyres and you go, yeah, I know what's going on, yeah. Because you don't want to buy a lemon. Because lemons aren't funny. Lemons are awful. Lemons are deceptive. Lemons are destructive. Now, today in Mark's Gospel, where we are is Jesus is having a standoff with the religious leaders. Now, since chapter 4, they've kind of been circling each other like two African animals, right? But today, there's no circling. They just go for each other. Claws are out. We are in full battle mode. But as you heard it read half an hour ago, the presenting issue was really small, wasn't it? It was like, really? But Jesus spies a lemon. See it in verse 1? We've got the local Pharisees. These are the guys that live in that area. And we've got the Jerusalem scribes, scribes and Pharisees. And they confront Jesus about hand washing. Now, this isn't hygienic. This isn't COVID washing, right? 15 seconds or whatever it was. Happy birthday. You know, remember those times? It's not that. It's actually not even an Old Testament law. Because the command in the Old Testament was only for priests to do a ritual hand washing at the time of the sacrifice. Exodus chapter 30. Now the religious leaders were upset that team Jesus were not following their traditions. We see it in verse 5. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands. For the Jews, purity, being clean, was of major importance. And that's because their God was holy, and they were the holy people. And in their Bible, Leviticus, Leviticus contained pages and pages on how to be pure, on how to be holy. And so Leviticus provided the sacrificial system, which dealt with how we dealt with sins. But it also had a whole bunch of external ritual laws. These are things that happen on the outside of our body, like diet laws and Sabbath laws, circumcision laws, washing laws. And these external rituals gave Israel an identity. Now remember, this group of people were really small. No one knew them. So these ritual laws gave them an identity. So when people went, ah, you must be Jewish because of the external things that they did. So it set them apart visibly and socially as God's chosen people. It was like it was their uniform. So you kind of went, ah, Kinross person. Ah, yeah, Orange High person. This was their uniform, their external ritual. Now, over a thousand years, Israel's leader became very, very passionate about the jersey, the uniform. Very passionate. And so they really wanted people to have the jersey right. So they developed the oral law. And that was called the tradition of the elders. This was the non-Bible, the extra Bible for Jewish, for Jewish people to do the rituals properly. And one example of this is called the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah is 2nd century AD, so after Jesus... But it's a great example of what the tradition of the elders was like in Jesus' day. And as you read the Mishnah, you read that the rituals were always extended. They went from just the priests to all the people. It went from 
just the sacrifices to then all foods. And there were pages and pages. Mark tells us about it in verse 3, doesn't he? Pages and pages of rituals for how you wash your cup, your knife, your fork, your plate, your saucepan, right? Like so many pages of ritual rules. Now, no doubt this came from good intentions, but it became absurd, utterly absurd. One example of the absurdity is Rabbi Asibia. He nearly died of thirst in prison because he used all his water for ritual washing. Absurd. The religious leaders would go around and they would say, wash, clean, do. Wash, clean, do. Wash, clean, do. And everyone was like, oh, okay. I've got to be clean from the outside in. Clean my outsides will fix my insides. What Jesus does is he spots a lemon and he goes on the offensive. Have a look at verse 6. Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts is from me, far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Jesus declares that the Pharisees are just like the religious leaders in Isaiah's day, 800 years before. And he calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from the theatre, drama. And what it means is to wear a mask or be a mask wearer. What Jesus is saying here is the religious leaders are wearing a mask. On the outside, they look like they love God, they honour God, they are doing all these external rituals and it makes them look like God lovers. But you take the mask away and underneath, they are so far from God. Their hearts are nowhere near God. It's just a show. It's a lemon. Now, what had gone wrong? They weren't jerks. They didn't try and do this. They actually loved the Bible. But they had done an extraordinary substitution. And I love it. Jesus tells us three times how they did it. I love it when he says three times. We usually get it when he says it three times. Have a look at it on the screen. They abandoned the command of God. And you hold on to human tradition. You find a way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. Powerful, isn't it? I want you to imagine a seesaw. On one end, you've got God's word. And on the other end, you've got human tradition or human ideas. And what have they done? Well, they've just lifted up the human traditions higher and higher. Now, these human traditions, they're not bad. They're not bad things. They're actually pretty good things. They're things like ritual washing. That was a good thing. It's things like full immersion baptism. That's a good thing. 
reading the KJV version of the Bible or the NIV version of the Bible. That's a good thing, right? Having a favourite version, celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's a good thing. Wearing nice clothes to church. A lot of churches in the world still have that as a tradition. Not going to the pub. Good tradition. But it's been elevated to the top of the seesaw. And what's happened to the other end? The leaders have pushed down, pushed down, pushed down God's word. Jesus declares they've abandoned it. They've pushed it aside. Verse 13, literally, the Greek says, they've dethroned the word. Oh, the word of God that was on the throne, they've taken it off and put it away. The picture is this. You read your Bible, oh, it's the most important thing. You put it on your bedside table, gets a bit of dust. You find it under the bed. It's under the bed in Israel's day. You see, the seesaw, it's reversed. The minor has been elevated, the important minimised. And the religious leaders, they would have totally rejected this. No, Jesus. So Jesus says, okay, I'll give you an example. See it there in verses 10 to 12? He uses the fifth commandment. We all know the fifth commandment. Honour your mother and father. Parents love this commandment. But uh, actually, the commandment's not that, not actually meant so much for parents with little kids. We use it for that. But actually, it's there so that as the parents get older and lose the ability to work and get sick, Israel would know from the heart of the Ten Commandments that you need to honour your parents. You need to care for them. Every Israelite knew that's what it meant. What had they done? They'd come up with a tradition. A tradition where you never had to look after your elderly parents. Because you would say, oh, the money I need to look after my parents, I'll just call it Corbin. And that was a tricky word that says, it's now dedicated to God, so I can't look after you, mum and dad. It has to go to the work of God. And then they came up with a second tradition. You can't break a Corbin vow. Which means, oh, sorry, it's not my fault. I just, it says here, I can't break it. That money cannot be used. So what we see here is a heartless tradition elevated and the beautiful, heartfelt word of God, the fifth commandment, pushed down. This lemon has another name called moralism. Horrible and it's deceptive. And what moralism does when your outside is different to your inside, when you're focusing so much on, a, on obeying rules to feel right, is that it leaves the religious leaders feeling no peril about their actual state before God. They have no guilt in this story. But worse than that, these religious leaders are tying God's people in knots. They're creating either despair, oh, I could never obey all these things, or pride, oh, I'm pretty good at obeying these things. And then it separated God's church into those who do the rituals and are good and those who don't do the rituals and are seen as not good. And these traditions, they never bring grace or hope or assurance or acceptance. Moralism, it's not a first century only problem. Moralism is everywhere. 
Moralism is in every religion in the world. Moralism is all the way through the Catholic Church. Moralism is all the way through the Protestant Church. Moralism is in SRE. I've taught SRE for years. You ask the kids, how do you get close to God? Obey the Ten Commandments. Where did they learn that? Why do they think doing something on the external will get me closer to God? Moralism is even in OEC. Its tentacles creep through the door into this place. We say, no, Jesus, we're people of grace. We're people of faith alone, grace alone, Bible alone. And Jesus says, yes. So when someone asks you, how are you going in your relationship with God? What do you normally say? Oh, I'm reading my Bible. I come to church. I'm not doing that. I'm trying to do this. Now, they're good things, aren't they? Don't think they're bad, but they're external. As Christians, we need to watch for moralism. Here are two symptoms that we find in the passage. Number one, moralism is seen in a condemning spirit. See, moralism causes you to be more concerned with the behaviour of someone else than yourself. Moralism we see in the passage, the religious leaders are so passionate about the disciples' hand-washing, they cannot look into themselves. Is that spirit in you? Are you at this moment more worried about the behaviour of someone else than the condition of your own heart? Happens with older people looking down on younger people. It happens in marriages when a spouse is struggling with another spouse and all they can think about is what the other spouse does wrong. And it happens in churches when friendships break down and we become more concerned with the behaviour of them. Symptom two, carelessness with God's word. You can literally smell the new ministry centre now. You can imagine singing in it. You can imagine it full at the Mark drama. You can imagine what God's going to do. But if we are careless with God's word in that beautiful building, or if we're careless with God's word at growth group, or if we're careless with God's work at teen talk, Moralism will grow. We'll find ways of avoiding obedience. We'll find ways of not caring for one another because we will promote human ideas and we will suppress God's word. If we ever go back to Europe, you will always find empty church buildings. What tourists do? Go to another church. Empty church. How are they empty? Because they were careless with God's word. And when you're careless with God's word, moralism grows. Moralism is a lemon. And the religious leaders were selling it. 
And so what does Jesus do in verse 14? He calls the crowd to himself. It's beautiful. And he says, hey, we're going to look under the hood. Let's have a look at this moralism. Look at verse 14. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus says, listen and understand. The double is emphatic. Do not miss this. Jesus says, reverse the seesaw. Listen to God's word over human tradition. Why? Because real purity is not a matter of the outsides. The food you eat, washing hands, special days, it makes absolutely no difference. Purity is a matter of the inside. That was revolutionary. That was like Earth now orbits the sun, revolutionary, right? Like you had the Pharisees obsessed with the externals. The Christian church for the last 2,000 years obsessed with the externals. Even our secular world, the world that's discipling our children, it is obsessed with the externals. We hear it, don't we? It says... We are fundamentally good and the problems of life have to come from the outside. Difficult people, that particular political system, that lack of education. Jesus says it's a lie. Reverse the seesaw. Focus on the insides. And then his disciples get Jesus and they say, Jesus, can you explain this a bit more, please? I love that. Now, Jesus is frustrated with them here. I know that. We'll deal with that next week. Okay? But what Jesus beautifully does is explains how revolutionary this is. Three things. Number one, food rules and washing rituals will not put you offside with God. We see it there, don't we, in verse 18. Jesus says, don't you realise that nothing goes into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. It's a biology lesson. Okay, ready? Food into mouth, esophagus, stomach, intestines, out. Eliminated. You can work out what he means, right? It's very simple. What's he trying to say? It doesn't go near the purity heart. It doesn't go near where it matters. It's just food. Jesus is not saying all food is good for you. Sorry. Hot chips are still bad for you. And he's not saying that if you fill your ears and eyes with games of throne, pornography, video games, which are all about violence and degrading people, if you, if you fill your mind, you're not negatively affected. Of course you are. What Jesus is saying is, is that food rules and washing rituals will not put you offside with God. Actually, what Jesus is saying here is, The Old Testament food laws are now cancelled. See it there in the brackets. That was completely life-changing. If you're a Jewish person and you're sitting there, you're going, what is going on? None of the Jews would ever have a meal with you guys. See, only after this point could we then eat as Jew and Gentile. Actually, it took about 30 years for the church to work this out. Number two, Jesus says purity is a matter of your heart. Not your blood, your blood pumping heart, but the heart in the Bible 
is the center of your personhood. It's the control center. So imagine a big ship. It's the, it's the deck. It's the, um, it's the bridge where, where you drive from. It's the steering wheel of the car. It's the home of your thoughts and desires and motivations and values. And what Jesus is saying is, is that pure? Is the steering wheel of your life the deepest place of thought and values in your life? Is that pure? Why? Because whatever rules your heart rules your life. Then Jesus says this, the human heart is a factory of sin. See it there in verses 20 to 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. See, when we look inside the heart, under the hood, we see a river of sin. I find 21 and 22 hideous. Horrible. How is that in the Bible? That's just gross. And actually, do you note the direction? Jesus doesn't say, it's your evil actions which make your heart dirty. No, no, he says, the heart leads to action. It's profound. In our town, there is horrific sexual sin. There's adultery in our town. There is abuse. There is so much immorality with young people and their bodies. There is so much porn. And what Jesus is saying here is the problem isn't, the core problem isn't the physical stuff. It is a problem, but it's not the core problem. What's the core problem? It is our immoral, lustful heart. The core problem with mean and lying and unwholesome tongues, words, is a proud and hungry heart. You and me, we consume too much. We have so much stuff that we end up putting it in the bin. What's the problem with that? It's because we have a materialistic and a covetous heart. Some of us are workaholics because we have a discontent heart. The external is driven by the internal. And the problem is not out there, it's in here. All our hearts are impure. Not as black as they could be, but not pure in any measure. Now, personal responsibility is on the nose in our world. Okay? When you've got a problem, it's the referee's fault, the umpire's fault, the coach's fault, the boss's fault, the victim's fault, and ScoMo's fault, right? That's what we do. We just, we, we're not taking... Actually, I was so relieved to be reading the Sydney Morning Herald. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? But um, I was reading it, and I was reading about Latrell Mitchell, who smashed Joseph Manu last year and left him so injured. But Latrell says, no, no, that was me, completely. 100% no excuses. It's like, what? Personal responsibility in the newspaper. Foreign. How would you respond to Jesus today? You can sit there and go, I'm just going to harden my heart. Because Jesus, I'm getting somewhere. 
I'm at 80% Bible reading this year. I've stopped saying that. I've stopped thinking that. I've got actually, Jesus, my outsides are looking real good. You might be sitting there going, oh, typical Christianity always makes me feel terrible. That's... You know what Jesus says? This is an honesty moment. It's a time for honesty. Because Jesus makes us realists. It's an old illustration, and most of us know it, but it's a good one, isn't it? G.K. Chesterton responded to a newspaper article which says, tell us what you think is wrong with the world. People wrote essays after essays after essays. G.K. Chesterton wrote two words. I am. I am the problem with the world. Profound clarity. Not someone else's fault. See, I have an unclean heart and I need an internal solution. You have an unclean heart. You need an internal solution. When we get to that honesty moment, you know what we do? We ask Jesus for help. When we do, the great news of Christianity is that Jesus cleans us from the inside out. Jesus comes to rescue you from you, me from me. And Jesus can do this because he alone lived with a perfect heart, a pure heart. He alone kept God's law and he alone is an acceptable sacrifice. And when we look at that cross and we imagine the blood that was poured out, we know that he is paying for that long list of sins in 21 and 22. And he is purchasing forgiveness from the inside out. See, Jesus cleans us and then gives us a new heart. And so if you're a Christian today, whether you've been a Christian for two minutes or 90 years, you sit here pure. You sit here acceptable, you sit here approved, and you sit here being renewed all through Jesus. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And now for these few seconds between now and when Jesus returns, and when he returns he will get rid of sin and death and evil forever, Jesus helps us in the battle. You see, I know I'm clean, but I struggle to be clean. And Jesus helps me by the power of the Holy Spirit and his community to try and live a pure life each day. Helps us in the battle. So, an honesty moment. Is your heart clean? There's no maybe in the answer. There can't be a maybe. It's yes, Jesus has cleansed it. No, I just put a mask over it. If today the Spirit is helping you, be honest, you can take the mask off, you can stop acting and come to Jesus and find forgiveness. The best thing you'll ever do. And when you come to Jesus and say help, he will give you grace, hope, approval and acceptance. All as a gift.
And for the rest of us who are in the battle, clean hearts, trying to live clean ways, can we never, ever, ever sell ourselves a lemon again? And when we open our beautiful building, can we never sell orange a lemon? Let's put moralism in the bin. Let's not tell anyone that Christianity is about what you do and having shiny outsides. We need to do that by reversing the seesaw, by putting God's word here and human opinion here, by saying the insides are more important than the outsides. I just want to read you a challenging quote that's been really challenging to me and may not be challenging to you, but it's been very challenging to me. It's from J.C. Ryle, an older theologian. He said this, When children do wrong, it is common practice to lay the blame on bad companions, bad friends at school. But it is mere blindness and foolishness to do so. Bad companions are an evil, no doubt, and an evil to be avoided. But no bad companion teaches a boy or girl half as much as the sin in their own hearts. The beginning of all wickedness is within. If parents were half as diligent in praying for their children as planning for their activities, there would be great blessing for all. Powerful, isn't it? We were half as diligent as praying. Why would that matter? Because prayer takes you to what's the most important thing, which is God working in the insides. Lots of us are battling with a recurrent sin. Some of you it's sexual, for some of you it's your words, some of you it's your heart. Do you know the only way to beat that sin? is By God working in your heart. All your 10-step programs will be nice but you need heart surgery by the Spirit of God. As we sit in a world that's horribly broken, all the hashtags and the strategies are nice, but the world needs God working in hearts. That is why the most powerful thing you can do for the Ukraine is to pray. You know that frustrating brother or sister at church at four? They'll only become less frustrating by God's word working in their hearts. And today, you will never be more accepted or loved or close to God once Jesus has worked in you from the inside. Almighty God, you are a God that looks behind the mask behind our rituals, behind those good things that we we hold dear, that help us, and you look inside. May you be the king of our heart. Thank you that you clean our heart. Thank you that we are pure and approved because of what Jesus has done. May we be people who don't emphasise the outside, but live out the change you are doing from the inside. For we are your saved people, Lord. Great glory. Amen.